0: Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Stephen P. Wood. I am an acute care nurse practitioner in Boston, Massachusetts, an EMT, SWAT medic, World Extreme Medicine Fellow, and adventure enthusiast. And I'm joined here today by Luke Huntley, who I had the pleasure of speaking to at our latest World Extreme Medicine 2021 conference, both in Edinburgh, Scotland but also virtual worldwide. And I wanted to carry over our conversation on his role as a snake catcher in Australia. We were limited to just 40 minutes and we had so much more to cover. So I'm welcoming Luke uh, today from Noosa, Australia. I'm in Boston. It's early here, it's late there, but we'll do our best to trudge through, Luke. So Luke, I wanted to welcome you Thank you so much for joining us at the World Extreme Medicine Conference recently, and thanks for joining me today. I want to start with asking you, how did you become a snake catcher?
1: I have been a a snake catcher for the last six years. I've been catching snakes basically my whole life, but as a professional snake catcher for the last six years. So yeah, part of the legal side of things, I had to get what's called a damage mitigation permit. A damage mitigation permit, which basically is like a snake catcher license. And it um, you know, you go and do a bit of training and I got really, really, really lucky. I actually had like trained me and it he was sort of like a bit of a mentor to me. He was really, really good. He lived about probably forty minutes away. And then there's another snake catcher who I watch and who has mentored me. Uh, as well, and he has been absolutely fantastic. So I've learned a lot from them, and obviously a lot from uh, trial and error. T- trial and error. Uh, yeah, definitely learning along the way that I am today. So
0: when you say you have to get a damage mitigation certificate, is there any formal training that snake catchers have to go through, or is it just that you're attesting that you've done this, you've had a mentor, or is there some sort of formal process for all of this? No,
1: look, there definitely is a formal process, a legal requirement. So in order to get a damage mitigation permit, um, so it's issued by the uh, Environmental Heritage Protection, which is basically a... (laughs) Department of the Queensland Government, actually it's dif- different in each state but we're specifically talking about Queensland here um, and basically yeah you have to do a venomous snake handling course, um, apply for your damage mitigation permit um, basically online and you have to have your, your first day done as well. Once it gets granted uh, you are able to become a snake catcher and start advertising. Uh, and start doing snake calls professionally so every three months you have to uh, do what's called a return of operations so basically every single snake you're catching uh, you have to record where you catch it and of course where you're taking the snake to so there is a bit of a legal side to it as well you can't just like suddenly become a snake catcher and get out there and go and do it you have to definitely have all the relevant paperwork in place
0: and when you say uh, take the snake elsewhere, are there designated areas for the release of these snakes? Does Queensland and and other parts of Australia do they? How do they designate where these snakes are being um, basically repatriated?
1: Yeah. So look, definitely, like there are. So based in our, on our permit, it basically says, uh, you know the snake is to be relocated to the nearest suitable bit of bushland." So. As long as, you know, you obviously can't drop it on people's properties. I mean, why would you do that anyway? Um, it's not like some people make jokes about that actually. because like, oh, yeah, you just sling it over someone's fence and, you know, they'll give you a, you know, not only, well, that's obviously, you know, very unethical and I've never done that. But you don't know whether or not that person's going to kill the snake with a shovel. And a lot of some people do. So if you, you know, chuck a snake over someone's fence, oh, I'm just going to get another call. There's a possibility that, that person might be one of those people who doesn't call a snake catcher. They just run to their shed and pick out the shovel right. or whatever implement they use to kill them. So, no, we definitely pick our spots quite carefully. So, where we take uh, the release location is really important. So, you have to make sure that the environment is very similar to where you've caught it from. So, if it's, uh, you've caught it on like a hillside that's facing, facing east, you need to take it to a hillside in the bush. Um, usually, like, I go within about five kilometres, so it's not too far away, but it's not too close. So it's far enough away that the snake's not going to come back, but it's also not f- too far away that the snake's going to uh, of relocation. So, basically, snakes, um, it's called snake translocation, and there's all these different studies done on snake translocation. And basically, uh, that if you, for example, so I caught a snake, That's spent its whole life living in the sand dunes um, of, say, Sunshine Beach, which is just out, just on the beach near Noosa. And I took it all the way inland, like 20 kilometres, and put, you know, dumped it out west, you know, where there's farms and creeks, and the the environment's completely different. That snake's going to have a way, way, way lower chance of survival, simply because it's not used to that environment. So we have to make sure we're taking them to state forests, nature meant to take them to national parks because they're like considered to be like delicate ecosystems however if you really if you catch a snake that's next to a like the house is next to the national park for example you can just take the snake back to the back to the national park and it's going to be absolutely fine so yeah we've got a bit the the only legislation is uh take it to the nearest suitable bit of bushland. So every snake that I catch in really, really, really seriously um, to try and make sure the snake's got the best possible chance of survival, but also that the snake's not going to come back, and I'm doing the good best thing by the uh, the people that have called me as well.
0: That's uh, that's interesting. I, I honestly wouldn't have thought about kind of relocating a snake to its similar environment and that that seems to make sense Uh, which brings me i guess to the next question which would be um and it probably varies by snake and we'll get into what what the different types of snakes you're dealing with there are but what's the range of these snakes how far you know might they travel do they stay fairly local once relocated or you know do they do they travel that's a Uh, and what's their range that's a really
1: good question and actually it does vary So, um, obviously, depending on the the place where you release the snake, if there's a lot of food and water for the snake, they're obviously going to thrive and they're not going to need to travel too far. Um, Now, during breeding season, so breeding season uh, is from September to November, so our spring, Australian spring, female snakes start ovulating. So, they basically, they're... It's like when a dog goes on heat, and you know, when a female dog goes on heat, there's a scent that goes in the air and it attracts all the boys. So, when a female snake is ovulating, she's bringing in all the boys. Now, those male snakes can travel up to 20 kilometers looking for a female. Now, most of the time, they're not going to travel that far because there's obviously going to be way more females between him and 20 kilometers away. However, some snakes, they did a they did a study... Uh, down south on tiger snakes now different snake species are different however I, I believe that the same principle will definitely apply here is they tagged a whole heap of tiger snakes living uh, around this one area and they left them and they those snakes had never been relocated before they grew up in that area and they had a home range of five square kilometers the relocated snakes they thrived, the ones that had been caught like on snake calls and relocated away from people's houses, those snakes had almost exactly the same uh, survival rate and they they thrived. However, their home range extended to 20 square, square kilometres. So what we're kind of seeing in these uh, relocated snakes is they, generally speaking, will travel a bit um, the case because obviously some snakes you know like I was saying before when you pick your spot if you pick the right spot they're not going to need to travel like if I was to drop a snake out west in the middle of like in the middle of nowhere with nothing around that snake's going to have to travel but if you're releasing them near creeks and you know like freshwater rivers and they've got water there's plenty of food around you know near farmland, uh, and we're talking huge farms here, like massive, millions of hectares farms, and there's plenty of rats and mice and plenty of food, those snakes aren't going to have to travel that far. So they're going to be able to stay within a shorter range uh, and still thrive and have the best chance of survival.
0: So... That's 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 incredible. I didn't realize a snake would have that kind of range. Um, 20 kilometers is, is an incredible range. But I guess you're looking for a girlfriend, then you'll go anywhere. Right. That's a, the, the definition of a long distance relationship, especially, you know, for these cute Aussie snakes, for sure. Um, so well, when we, we're I, I've about flown things.
1: to the UK. Yeah. <laughs> I flew to the UK <laughs> for a girl. So. <laughs> I hear you.
0: Yeah. So we're talking about snakes. Uh, Let's talk about actually the types of snakes that you're working with. I know that that's going to vary through different parts of Australia and maybe you can speak to that as well, but what are the more common snakes that that you're dealing with um, and what are some of the features of those snakes uh, that our audience might be interested in hearing about?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. So, look, we are on the Sunshine Coast. We're really, really lucky. We've got about 25 uh, species of snake. Um, There's actually a couple more, but, you know, for the most part, we see regularly. So, it is a bit seasonal as well. So, the most common snake all year round that we do get are carpet pythons. So, carpet pythons are a non-venomous constrictor. So, yeah, obviously they, they, they're ambush predators. So they'll basically wait in trees, sneak up into chicken coops, grab chickens while they're sleeping, uh, sit up in trees waiting for birds to fly past, uh, and very patient hunters. Uh, they're, they're obviously non-venomous. However, a bite from a carpet python really hurts still. Like, I've been bitten by heaps of pythons over the years, and it's not the bite itself can be quite bad but mostly it's not it's the uh it's if they break any teeth off or often what they're eating all that stuff the from the rotten food stays on their teeth so when it can get really infected so um well i'm talking to you so you obviously know all the infections and and uh and like dog bites it's like kind of like it's not as bad as a dog bite like i know dog bites are really bad but if you, you can get a seriously, seriously nasty infection from a snake bite, from a, from a non-venomous snake bite. So carpet pythons are, generally speaking, pretty reluctant to bite. Um, you know, if you annoy them or you, you know, you're trying to whack how to go at them, you know, obviously they're going to want to defend themselves. I've had to go on antibiotics. I've had teeth surgically removed from my hand before. Uh, and it's been really, really interesting. Uh, there's plenty of carpet pythons around basically carpet pythons are my bread and butter without carpet pythons i wouldn't be able to be a snake catcher uh, just because yeah they're basically the ones that most people call up about Uh, eastern brown snakes anonymous land animal and there are plenty of them around as well so from in breeding season so september to november so spring uh, our spring anyway the eastern brown snakes go crazy, especially in October. I find October for me is when I get between one and four brown snakes a day. My record was uh, it was seven brown snakes. Now, some snake catchers in Australia who are in areas where eastern brown snakes are species, uh, that's you know not that high a number. Like some some of them will literally get like ten brown snakes in a day. Thankfully for me, my most common is carpet pythons, but I get enough brown snakes to keep me happy. You know, if I don't catch a brown snake in a week, uh, I'm. I, 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 if I get them all the time, I I start getting tired because they're the world's second most venomous snake, uh, land, land snake. A single drop of venom can kill 16 healthy men, so they're really, really venomous. But, of course, their venom's not designed to take us on. It's to... When they bite a rat or a mouse, it immobilizes that rat and mouse so, so fast. So I've actually watched an Eastern Brown hunt in a shed before. Uh, And I arrived and the lady's like, oh, look, it's eating all the rats and mice. Like, I really want the snake gone, but should we just let it eat as many? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Let's just see how many it gets. We sat there for 10 minutes and it got killed and ate six rats. And it went from being this skinny, it was still a decent-sized brown snake, a pretty skinny snake to this really, really big, fat, swollen-up snake because it was full of six rats, which was really, really cool. But it was amazing to see, absolutely amazing to see. Uh, and, but the most incredible part, not just to see them eating, to see how fast that venom acts on, on its actual prey. So, when you get bit, you'll start feeling symptoms and you'll start getting a headache, you'll start feeling dizzy, you'll start sweating uh, and, yeah, you need to, you know, obviously put a compression bandage on it and go straight to hospital or get someone to take you to hospital or call, call, uh, call an ambulance. Now, uh, with a rodent, their actual prey... Within five seconds, it stopped running. Within 10 seconds, the snake's eating it. That's on, uh, on, the, on a prey item. So, uh, eastern brown snakes, their venom is absolutely uh, evolved for that specific task, and it's really, really cool to watch. Look, they're an amazing animal. And for, yeah, look, brown snakes uh, are the most hated snake in Australia by far. Because they're obviously really, really venomous, and people's dogs and cats, mainly dogs, uh, find them in, in their in their yards. Now the dog's just doing its its job, defending the yard, and it doesn't know that the snake's venomous. The snake's not in there to get the dog. The snake's just cruising through. So it's a bit of a. Uh, a Of basically you know the dogs met the snake and the snakes met the dog they have a confrontation now 99 percent of the time the dog rips the snake to pieces but then gets bitten in the process so obviously an eastern brown snake's not going to eat a dog not in a million years even a big six foot brown snake's not going to eat a dog but it'll bite the dog and then get killed in the process and often what happens is, well, they have to. Now, it's a bit—it works a little bit different with dogs and and the and eastern brown snake venom. So for us, we start processing it, we start feeling stuff really, really, really quickly. However, with dogs and cats, but we're specifically talking about dogs here, they'll—they might look like they're having a small, small symptoms, and then they'll bounce back. And then you will think, oh, no, it's fine. My dog hasn't been bitten. And they for eight hours and then suddenly drop. And then it's way, way too late. You can't save them by that point. So I always encourage people when they go, oh, can you ID this snake for me? And I'm getting sent a photo of this snake, which has been chewed up. And it's, you know, a brown snake. Like just literally the other day on Saturday, I got my, um, a picture of a chewed up brown snake uh, in just down the road from here. And uh, I had to say, yeah, look, it's an eastern brown snake. You have to take your dogs to the vet. She explained about the, uh, you know, the dogs fighting backs and looking fine uh, and then it being too late. So I've actually had a couple of people over the years ignore my advice to go straight to the vet and their dogs have died later on and then they're trying to take their uh, dog to the vet later on and it's too late. It's incredibly expensive to go to the vet and get antivenine and to do the tests, and for you know paying almost a thousand dollars for the test, depending on the vet you go to, just to see if your dog's been bitten. And then, if your dog has been bitten, you could go through thousands of dollars. Like someone said, they paid almost seven grand at the for the, and their dog still died. And that's pe- people have that in the back of their mind now. Some people around here. Um, most people are, uh, yeah, they're fine financially. Most people around here have got plenty um, and they'll go straight to the vet. But some people, it's a lot of money and they won't go to the vet. And unfortunately, yeah, their animals suffer for it. So that's why Eastern Browns have got a really bad rap. Like, oh, yeah, my last dog got bitten by a brown snake and as a, and died. And now as a snake catcher, I have to deal with that all the time. Now, I've got two dogs. I'm sitting here on my uh, on my sofa, and you'll be able to see this. You'll be able to see this, Stephen. But there you go. My two two dogs yeah. sleeping on the sofa, um, and I'm I'm yeah. always worried, always worried about the dogs and snakes. Like I'm not fearful. I'm aware of mm. obviously that there are snakes around. However, I uh, I do worry because I, I got a border collie and a cattle dog, and It's just in their nature to be very defensive of things that come in the yard, Pono, Brion, and try and hug them. But with with animals that come into the yard, yeah, they're really, really defensive. And snakes, I've trained them both to be uh, very, very uh, distant with snakes, like they'll stay away. However, if I'm not here... I can't control it, that. and that's definitely something that I really worry about because as a snake catcher I have to deal with it all the time I, I've gone to jobs where one it, it oh that's right now we're talking about it yeah uh, when was it about a month ago I got a call from this lady and she she was in, in hysterics uh, she was so upset she's like, two of my dogs have died and I don't know what it is. And the council says it's a, a taipan, which is, a, which is the world's third most venomous snake. Uh, and I, it won't be a taipan. Anyway, I go over there and both of her dogs were dead. Uh, we, I found one around the side of the house, but it, it, I could vomit it up all this um, blood and looked like these dog biscuits now, I drove and I drove past a, a 1080 bait. A 1080 is a canine poison that the council use. A lot of the, uh, uh, it's a really horrendous, horrendous poison. Yeah, 1080. Uh, It's basically, yeah, if the dog eats it, it's dead. There's no, you can't save the dog. It's going to die. Um, And I, I, gone through and you know i, the, I, we went, I even went out because i was on north, north shore so we had to get a boat over to this uh lady's house uh, and she's like it just went swimming over there and i found that on this little island and her second dog had died same thing and it did not i i collected a whole heap of these um these like the blood and the biscuits i put it into a bag and i took it, it to uh, the vet, and they sent it down to this laboratory in Brisbane, and they tested it, and it was actually 1080, not snake, not a snake. Um, but that's why I was there. So she was told that, it, and then I, and then obviously that's why I was there. But then anyway, it ended up being 1080. So her dogs had literally gone out and eaten the 1080 bait. But sometimes I do rock up where the per- person's dog has been bitten and killed by a snake. Uh, and it's really, really sad because you've got this really hysterical person, uh, and then you've got obviously someone's dead animal. And I've had that with cats. Um, a lot of people have their cats out. People have their cats outside now. In, in Australia's ecosystem, uh, a cat is an apex predator, and you know they will basically kill anything and everything. And it's it's they're not evil. They're not evil. It's just, it's just in their nature. It's just what they do. They like hunting and playing around with things. It doesn't make them evil. It's just something they naturally do. But uh, in Australia, you know, responsible now under Australian law and a lot of council laws, uh, some local councils say that no, You have to have your cats inside. A lot of councils own most of them. The cat has to remain within the con- the confines of your property. Which you know, some people have got massive properties, so it's sort of they go around roaming. Now, sometimes I get calls where people's cats have been eaten by snakes. I've even had a video of a, cat, um, and it was it would have, this cat was already dead, and yeah, it was really really confronting to see.
0: Mm. So what? So we're we're talking. I mean, certainly. You know, losing a pet—it's a horrific experience. And I'm—I'm I'm a pet owner myself. I have two cats, um, who I wouldn't necessarily call apex predators. They—they um, they certainly respond to me opening their can of food, but that's about as much hunting as they do. Um, what's the what's the threat to to human population? It sounds like with the carpet python, that would be pretty minimal. Um, Eastern browns, maybe more so. You mentioned a. Um, a few other snakes as well what's the incidence of of snake bites in your area or human snake interactions that uh you know that you've seen
1: so uh our local hospital uh actually not um, nambor hospital which is about 25 minutes away they get more snake bite admissions than a- any other hospital in australia just because the sunshine coast is so perfect for for snakes because it's not too hot it's not too cold it's nice and muggy it's plenty of bushland so there is a lot of people and there's a lot of people on the sunshine coast so there is a lot of that's a lot of people most people that go to hospital with these snake bites they're dry bites or they're from harmless snakes the The amount of people that get bitten by highly venomous snakes is really, really, really low. Now, most of these people who do get bitten by the highly venomous ones are trying to kill a snake or they're trying to catch it themselves uh, or they're a snake catcher. So, most of the time, one unintentionally gets bitten. They're either walking through the bush with bare feet Uh, or they're going through the garden and they're just putting their hands under logs and basically breaking all of the rules about living in Australia safely uh, and that's how they get bitten so uh, thankfully I don't get too many calls probably about three a year I guess where I'll get a call from someone going hey I just got bitten by this what's this now in my whole career, I've only had one person who's been bitten by a brown snake and called me, going, Hey, I got bitten by this snake, sends me a photo. I'm not feeling too well. Now, I'm uh, wasting that time. Like, if you've been bitten by something you don't know, just go straight to hospital. But, you know, you can't teach everyone common sense. And, you know, people react in different ways, and some people just don't they just don't get it um or they just don't want to go to hospital but yeah a lot of a lot of the time they are harmless snakes or when i say harmless i mean you know they're non-venomous so a lot of people uh, and tree snakes which are another harmless species of snake um and they'll they don't know what it is of course and they'll go straight to hospital uh and People have to get all their blood tests and so on because a lot of people, when they get bitten by a snake, they don't know what they're getting bitten by. So, for me, obviously, or for you know, other snake catchers, if we get bitten by it, we're like, oh, yep, that's fine. Or, you know, the time a couple of times I've been into hospital with venomous snake bites, I've gone, this is, the, this is the snake, and then they know exactly which antivenine to use. But they got a general antivenine as well, it's called polyvent antivenine, which is just like a general one. Uh, It basically covers all bases. So, yeah, if you're not sure what you've been bitten by and they do all the blood tests and they can't narrow it down to one particular snake, uh, they will give you antivenine. It knocks you around, but it does the job. I I haven't had it, thankfully, but I know a few people who have, and it's quite rough. Mm.
0: So, speaking of of which, um, do you carry a medical kit with you? Do you have supplies that you carry with you on these calls in case you are bitten or in
1: case someone's bitten when you arrive? What do you carry with yeah, you? Yeah, so look, uh, only only the hospitals uh, are allowed to administer us to antivenin. So yeah, you So know, a lot of the time when you get bitten by a snake, they'll do your blood test and they'll monitor you and they will only give you antivenine if you're going down. Um, otherwise, they'll just keep monitoring you. So we don't carry any antivenine. However, we do absolutely carry a compression bandage. So, the compression bandages, uh, the snake, proper snake bandages, uh, are made with these little um, little printout rectangles on the, on the bandage. So, basically, when you, you're putting the bandage on, you're pulling it to the tension that that rectangle stretches and becomes a square tension. So, you don't want to cut the circulation off. You want to slow it down. So, I mean, most most snakes in Australia, most venomous snakes in Australia have got really short fangs. So, when they bite you, all they're doing is getting in your skin. So, obviously, you know, that's still going to get you. Uh, and then, obviously, you, you know, you're absorbing and it goes into your lymphatic system and then it goes up to your lymph node and then gets pumped around your body. Uh, but the whole point in a compression, your, uh, the circulation... It's to slow down that trickle of venom coming up because the, the whole point is, yeah, otherwise, you know, if it's too tight, the paramedics are just going to take the bandage straight off and go, no, you're going to lose your hand or you're going to lose your foot or whatever part of your body uh, you've, you've tied up because you're like, oh, I want to stop it and, you, and your hand's going purple because you've tied a bandage so tight you know that's what blood poisoning you know you, you have to, that's why the snake bandage the compression bandages are really important basically if you don't have a compression like a proper compression bandage with the uh the square the rectangles will become the squares how i describe it to people because obviously not everyone has one of them i describe it like a firm handshake not too tight not a really weak handshake just a night nice, like how i describe it, a handshake on how are you mate? that kind of handshake it's like kind of firm but not too tight and basically have the bandage but yeah that's all we really carry that's all we all we need if we get bitten uh it's yeah take me to hospital please or yeah call call uh for in in australia call triple zero it's come and grab me
0: It's not. I, I remember as a kid growing up watching a show called The Lone Ranger, and I remember one of them was bitten by a rattlesnake, and they sucked the you know venom out of the wound. and And we know that that's not not exactly fruitful um, and quite dangerous. Do you encounter people doing any of these kind of you know uh, things that uh, really don't have any scientific basis? Do you do you find people who've been bitten by snakes that are they're trying, you know, like like you mentioned, placing a tourniquet or trying to suction out the the venom. Have you seen that
1: in your experience? I have got a, I got two very unusual uh, occurrences. So, uh, the first one's not from a. Um, uh, It was not from someone, it was from someone I did a call for, but he came, it was actually the lady's dad who buy a red belly, a red belly black snake, and he put coconut oil on the bite, because he did that with a spider bite, and he said it numbed the pain, it did something else, and anyway, it... Definitely didn't work. He said it didn't work, and he started feeling sick, and then he started vomiting, and he was sweating. And it's just like, really, coconut coconut oil on a snake bite didn't work. I'm I'm surprised that was one particular thing. And yeah, I have had, had someone say that they've sucked. They said, oh, we tried to suck the venom out of the out of the bite, and yeah. I guess you know people see things when they're a kid or they like watch an old fashioned old movie, and it gets it goes in their head and then they they panic and they don't know what to do, so they just you know do something like that binge uh snake bite um treatment methods that <laughs> that I've come across.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess I can take the coconut oil out of my uh, personal kit then I, if that's uh, no longer, any, no evidence supporting that. <laughs> um, although it's great to cook with, I'll say that. So I, I think I know the answer to this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know the answer to this. and uh, But I just kind of want to reiterate it, you know, for our, our listening audience. What do you feel is the biggest threat to the snake populations in Australia? What do you feel is... You know, kind of the 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 biggest concern for for their survival and their coexistence uh, here. You know, uh, in in our
1: world, honestly, cats, okay. outdoor cats slaughter them. Cat, you know, like I mean, having an indoor cat or having a cat in a climate that's not that not uh, rife with wildlife cats yeah like i I, don't get me wrong i i used to have a pet cat little souled creature and she was an indoor cat um so she didn't go outside just because i was too near the road and also i didn't want her to go out and hunt stuff but lots of people have them out and they kill everything and you know there's a lot of attitudes it's like, oh, my cat wouldn't hurt anything. It wouldn't do anything. But it's like, are you watching your cat 24-7? Like, I was out the other night at Conondale and we saw a cat. Now, not every cat out in the bush is someone's pet. Feral cats are a massive, massive problem. Feral cats are probably one of the number... Feral cats are the number one cause of loss of wildlife in Australia. They are... Uh, wow. There's millions of them and they breed quickly and yeah they they survive they're the ultimate survivors you know land development pushes snakes however brisbane uh uh, like brisbane snake catchers are so so busy even in suburban areas because people attract rats and mice frogs learn how to live in drains and and in, in people's gutters and people have water features and there's underground drainage systems and basically everything's connected so snakes can thrive but what they can't survive against is a cat and look dogs do it as well but cats will go actively out looking for stuff to to hunt uh it's yeah it's like it's an estimated 550 million reptiles a year in australia are killed by cats so that's just Mm. reptiles that's a lot of animals you know the the death toll to to feral cats and to cats mainly feral cats uh is is ridiculous so it's uh it is hard to talk about because people love their cats and i i I find it hard to talk about it too because i don't want to be the bad guy but that's the honest answer cats are cats are And and you know what, they don't just kill snakes, you know, they kill everything, you know, all these beautiful little birds and baby possums, koalas.
0: I, yeah, I, I honestly hadn't really, you know, thought about that, but I know that that's true actually for many, um, ecologic systems where there are feral cats, they, they become this apex predator. That's just devastating to that environment. Um, it's hard to beat humans, you know we're we're usually the most destructive, uh, for sure. And I'm sure you know we we've discussed it. You know there are a lot of people out there that would rather kill the snake than repatriate it or relocate it. Um, but uh, it's it's also important to know that you know uh, feral cats and outdoor cats um, have an impact on on the environment as well. Uh, so Luke, we're actually coming up on our 40 minutes time, uh, which it's been. It moves so quickly whenever we're together ch- talking about this. Uh, I know. You, you I didn't have some even really notice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you have some great stories, and I'm sure we can catch up again sometime and and share some more. Um, I I did want to say, you know, if you run out of snakes, I don't know if you just heard, but uh, they just found venomous sharks. Uh, that are, are uh, living in the River Thames in London. So if you if you need to uh, kind of branch out, uh, there's your next thing. It sounds very Australian to be a venomous shark wrang- wrangler, for sure. Oh, I'm in for that. <laughs> All right, great, great. Well, Luke, again, thank you so much for spending your, your time with us. Um, I really would hope that we can have you on again. I want to talk more about this very, very unique profession. Um, I, you know, don't think there are uh, many. Uh, I think you're a small group of very talented uh, and thoughtful people, and and I definitely want to uh, to talk again more. Uh, so thank you for joining us, and thank you, our audience, for joining us here at World Extreme Medicine. There are lots of podcasts you've been listening to. We're so grateful that you listen to our World Extreme Medicine podcast. We have such a diverse group of guests uh, and some great hosts. Uh, We uh, are sure you will enjoy our content. Uh, For those of you who missed it this year, uh, we're already planning World Extreme Medicine 2022. Uh, It's, again... Uh, slated to be just loaded with wonderful content uh, and just a great opportunity for people to get together and meet. And of course, follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Uh, We're always posting content there. And please visit our website at World Extreme Medicine. Uh, We have uh, a great deal of content. We have uh, courses that are coming up. We have job opportunities. uh, And of course, uh, the fellowship is a great opportunity to explore uh, as you uh, engage in world extreme in, in austere medicine in wilderness medicine in whatever area of you know this this field you're interested in. So thank you again for joining us. I look forward to hearing from all of you. Uh, I look forward to hosting you again sometime, Luke. And uh, I'll we'll Fantastic. catch you next thank time you. here at World Extreme Medicine. Thank you.